Hi, this is Tamson Granger. Yeah, this is Dan Abu Huff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on what, Sunday. And what day is April it? April 11th. There you go. April 11th, rainy, rainy day. Rainy day. But uh, we got our second shots this week. Mm-hmm. We so uh, we're on the road. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we're on the road, but uh, yeah. We're okay. We got, uh, we're, we're pretty on, much there. We're on the road to post-COVID, you know. Whatever. Confinement. Whatever lies ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. good. Very excited about that. Minimal side effects. Yeah. So let me tell you what the Mets did today, because I know it's on your mind. <laughs> it's raining. Talk about. Raining. It's raining like nobody's business, as Tamsin Granger would say. Raining cats and dogs. And uh, the Mets have a game at one o'clock. And... Uh, You'd wonder why they would think they could play the game. And the way the rules work in Major League Baseball is the team decides whether to start the game. And once the game begins, it's up to the umpires. The Mets, for reasons that are not clear, uh, decide to start the game. And the Mets, uh, you know, warm up their pitcher. They warm up their starting pitcher, Marcus Stroman. And the other team says to itself, this is not going to work. So they just warm up a relief pitcher. The Mets, uh, Marcus Stroman goes to the mound it's raining. And it's raining. And it's raining. It's, they started the game... In the rain. In the rain. And he throws a couple pitches. A guy hits a single. And Marcus Stroman's not happy. And now he's standing on the mound, uh, frumping about. And it's raining harder. And he throws another pitch. And then he gets an out. And it's raining harder. And now he's walking around circles. And he doesn't... You know, he's saying, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And the umpires come out and stop the game. With one out in the first inning. The game is now postponed. The way baseball works... Uh, the way pitchers are handled, he may not be able to pitch for several more days because they get ready for a start now on a certain cycle or whatever. And you know who made a statement saying this was the dumbest thing of all time? Marcus Stroman. Marcus Stroman is now in the press saying, what are the Mets doing? Mm-hmm. You know, what are they doing? Why did they start this game? And uh, listen, there's a case to be made that the Mets have for some time been the dumbest team in baseball. I don't watch 30 other teams. I can't say that for sure. But they got to be in the lowest quadrant, and the the the, uh, the nice thing is that well it will play out differently this year. They have a new owner. He actually, you know, someone's at home, and he may have something to say. I just wanted to get this off my chest. This is unbelievable. So so there was no game. That no was game. It. No game. But they wasted yeah. a pitcher. But let's go on. Life goes on, right? Because it was you know obviously they weren't going to play. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what, what's going on? So, here's what we did this week that was pretty... A couple of interesting things. One, uh, Tamsin, the computer specialist in the family, uh, got us signed up for, and we saw... Well, it wasn't because of the computer. I read an article about... About... Uh, John Cullum. Streaming performance right. by John Cullum. Right. Who is... A great musical star. Right, but he's like 91. 91 years old. 91 years old. And he's doing a live performance, a cabaret act, streaming, as you say, a benefit for three organizations, right? I don't really think it was live. Well, you're right. But it was a perform- It was live when they taped it. And they, and they yes, taped it. They, he, was, he was alive when they taped it. And they taped it. it when he was 91. That's my point. That's okay, and what, what was it called? It was called An Accidental uh, Star. John Cullum, An Accidental Star. And so it was, it's the story of his life. Right. In the theater. And it was sponsored by uh, Vineyard Theaters, Irish Rep, and uh, Goodspeed Musicals. And those are three organizations which are looking to raise funds by this. And uh, so they charged what they charged, you know, $20, $30 or whatever. And uh, you sign up. 
you put in your credit card. All right, let's and, not. And, and you watch it. Wait a minute, it. the charge is worth talking about because oh, it wasn't ahead. twenty, thirty dollars. Oh, okay. Whatever. What was it? First of all, I think you can stream it at no cost. Is that right? Yes. Oh. We signed up for a live watch party. Right. Which you could. It was pay what you want. Oh, I didn't realize that. All right, okay. and there were. They had ticket prices, oh, and you I sign see. up for you could, a ticket, you could, but the ticket prices started at zero. Is that right? And then there was fifty-five. That's and, interesting. You know, and uh, ten dollars, etc. So they had different categories. Very interesting. And um, in the process of uh, signing up and you know buying your ticket, you yeah. were given other opportunities. Uh, to donate, right. which would be divided between the three organizations. Understood. But uh, I didn't so, realize that. Well, I, I thought that was interesting how they set that up. You know, making it well, accessible to everybody, yeah. but encouraging people to contribute because these arts organizations do need the contributions. Well, that's similar to what Classic Stage is doing this Thursday, on April fifteenth. In their case, what they're showing is a video. Uh, about the upcoming production of Assassins, which includes interviews with actors in Assassins and Steve Sondheim and others, and some performances. And they are, uh, you know, counting on people to donate donate based on their being moved by watching the video. And you, you're obviously going to donate as much as you like. And I've seen a little of the video, and what I saw was interesting, but okay. I only saw right. two minutes. All right, enough, enough so, so pushing you your agenda. What do you think of John Cullen? <laughs> I thought it was great. I was very skeptical. Yeah, because really? you know I misstated. It wasn't really the story of his life. It was uh, fun anecdotes right. uh, from his theater experiences. And uh, we have been to, a, I have been to a couple of other um, one-person performances right. with that uh, kind of um, program, mm-hmm. and uh, usually I'm pretty bored. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. It just get, it gets a little. Um, what was the one we saw? Jim Dale. Okay, Jim Dale. Yeah, but Jim. Dale, I thought that was awful. Uh, it wasn't and, awful. I, and Jim Dale's fine. Yeah, okay. You know, but I thought it, it bored me to tears. Well, okay, I, here, here's a couple things. First of all, I didn't think it was awful, but beyond that, oh, Jim, you did too. Jim Dale is not as as big a star in my mind as John Cullum. No. And let, let me just say for people listening, so we've seen John Cullum on Broadway in uh, on the 20th century. In uh, Town in 110 in the Shade. We saw him in the movies in 1776. He was also in, he originated the musical role in On a Clear Day, uh, You Can See Forever. He, Scottsboro voice. He's been in a lot of things. And we learned, in fact, during this performance that he was the uh, understudy for Richard Burton and Camelot. He's been around. And people and, know him from the TV. Yes, Northern, Northern Exposure. And he has an interesting story to tell. And he's uh, a very energetic, enthusiastic, in kind of an older person way, uh, teller of his story. And I think that's what draws you in. Is that fair? Yeah, but I I think they were very good stories. And I think he's a very good storyteller. Right. And probably that stems from his uh, upbringing, going to church. Yeah. And he said he was, you know... um, very deeply steeped in uh, church, you know, Bible recitation. In, in Tennessee, uh, where I grew up. Yeah, um, for example. And so, uh, you know, one of his great stories was getting his first job, which was Shakespeare. Right. He'd never even seen a Shakespeare performance, never read right. any Shakespeare. But he said, I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible. Right. And... Uh, 
um, if you can read that, you can read Shakespeare. Which I, it sounds right to me. I have no idea. But the way he put it, it sounded uh, axiomatic. And uh, obviously it worked for him. And he had wonderful luck, uh, you know, working for great people from the word go, from Joseph Papp to Moss Hart to like everybody. It was just yeah. incredible. But so, it is funny that at a certain point he sees himself as a Shakespearean actor. Right. About two months after, you know, you know, he's self-taught uh, um, Shakespeare. Right. He's, he's, he's learning Shakespeare. In he the bought fly. an old, old edition at the Strand. Right. Uh, for like a dollar of uh, Shakespeare's t- complete works, right. which he still has and he still uses. And uh, he just read through. Well, he said he, he doesn't use it anymore because he can't read the print, but he, he, he still has it. And uh, yeah, he was kind of charming and uh, in kind of a almost, yeah, he, he was, it was charming. Let me put it that way. He's clearly 91. He seems younger than 91, but not much. Uh, and what's interesting, too, about his performance, or about his career, actually, is he got all these parts in Shakespeare, and then he started getting auditions for uh, songwriting, for singing roles uh, in musical comedies. And he said he tried to avoid those, giving me the impression that he just didn't think of himself as a singer. Uh, eventually, that's where his career went. When you think of John Cullum, when I think of John Cullum, it you is first and foremost as a singer. Yeah. And he, you know, that's what carries him away. And he still doesn't think of himself that way. So, um, I mean, to me, it, will, it'll, it would be interesting to a lot of people, including uh, young actors, because it gives you one person's, uh, a really clear-eyed recollection of one person's experience, uh, serendipity, uh, doggedness, failure, uh, getting your start and working it and working it and, and succeeding in the oddest possible way. Right. Uh, and even worrying about parts well into his career. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it was, and it, it was, was amazing that he could still convey a sense of uh, sort of magic with the the song Camelot. Yeah, I mean, he really could evoke well, a sense of wonder. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, he, he, he uh, was in amazing poignance in, in character, and of course, it was kind of a you know, um, what would you call it? It kind of, Camelot had a kind of a double meaning, um, not just talking about Camelot the place, but also. Perhaps referring to his life. Yeah. Um, summing up his life and right. how that worked. And uh, what you were saying at the beginning in terms of my um, computer savviness, yeah. we should mention we were um, alone without the aid of our tech staff. Right. That would be Granger and Nico. And uh, I had decided that the way to watch this yeah. was on as big a screen as possible. And we managed to... Um, actually use the screen mirroring yeah. uh, aspect of uh, the phone and project it onto well, first our, of all, our big we TV. We managed it. You managed it. And, uh, but you were just showing off now. But, but yes, it's true. I know. To the average bear, I'm sure it's uh, not a big oh, deal at all. But, I don't uh, know. Don't sell yourself short. For us, it was kind of a milestone <laughs> it was a big deal to indeed. do that uh, without yeah. uh, help. All right, and we saw something more conventional this this week, which was the uh, Ken Burns uh, biography of uh, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. The PBS. Yeah. Uh, which was uh, more interesting than, than I thought it was going to be. I'm not a huge Hemingway fan. I have read, uh, you know, certain of Hemingway's novels and short stories, and some of them are uh, quite impressive. 
so I have to say it kind of pulled you in. It was interesting, uh, but it wasn't, it, it was in some ways unsatisfying. But, but what did you think of it? Yeah, I couldn't get over the idea. You know, I'm just uh, not a fan of the man. Okay. And, and I, I know um, that's a fraught concept. How You know, for me it is. How do you separate the art from the man? Right. Uh, and uh, should we think less of the art or more of the art or whatever? Well, that's, that's the issue. Um, that's but the issue. Uh, for him, he, you know, he has always seemed to me... Uh, like a pretty obnoxious drunk, yeah. And uh, he was definitely an alcoholic. He, yeah. I mean, there's no question about it. Well, look, that is, he had you, some skills because he had quite a few wives. <laughs> he, well, I don't mean I don't think that's what you meant by skills, but well, maybe. I sort of did. Okay. I mean, he was he's supposedly quite charming. Yeah, I don't doubt it. I mean, he. It, it's funny this idea about the man and the and and the writing because you're talking about authors. We're now seeing all these articles about the biography of Philip Roth. I just read, got to be the fifth one I read, review of the Philip Roth biography, which is on the same theme. You know, is he a jerk? Is he not a jerk? And what do we think of his writing, given that he tends to be a jerk or he tends not to be a jerk? And it's an impossible thing to unravel, and it's not clear it's worth unraveling. You know, the review of the Hemingway that I looked at in the Times that happened to have in front of me is fair. This is what uh, the reviewer says. This is James uh, Ponowocic. The resulting biography is clear-eyed about its subject and emotional about his legacy, uh, which I think is is fair. I mean, it's, it's identifying all his flaws, all his womanizing, all his drinking, at the same time terribly enthusiastic about his writing. And the, the uh, reviewer goes on to say the biggest compliment I can say about the uh, Burns piece is that it made me pull out my, this is the writer, his collected short stories off the shelf after years to start reading more Hemingway. Uh, and I can see that because, you know, they did quote quite a bit, the Jeff Daniels reading from the Hemingway books. And I will tell you, I was reminded, and I told you that when we were watching it, you know, there were things in For Whom the Bell Tolls that stick with me. Uh, it, it's not just the writing, frankly, it's what he was writing about. Yeah. But it's striking, stark, moving stuff. Uh, but as for Hemingway's life, as the reviewer says, um, well, he, he has a quote from Hemingway. If it is all beautiful, you can't believe it. Things aren't that way. <laughs> well, and, and, and it was an amazing story and a crazy story yeah. with the, his, uh, you know, in those early years, just uh, thrusting himself into um, war. Yeah, into war zones. <laughs> zones yeah. uh, starting when he was like 18. Yeah, he's um, crazy. And uh, they kept talking about he did this, he did this, he did this, he was in this war, he was in that war, and then he said, and then he turned 21. And you're going, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what so, was that? And of course, and all the time he looked 40, you know? Yeah. As soon as he so, in many ways, it was an interesting story, even, uh, you know, uh, aside from the writing. Yeah. All right. So, we also had this past week uh, the uh, final of the. Uh, NCAA men's basketball tournament. and Was that this week? That was uh, It seems Monday. like a month ago. Yeah, it seems Monday. And of course, oh because I had Gonzaga, the final was won by Baylor. Yet another uh, situation where a team would have just declared the greatest team of all time, in this case Gonzaga, uh, loses two days later. And uh, Baylor killed them. It wasn't even a close game. But what, what's, what's interesting uh, that I learned after the game is that... Uh, 
following the NCAA final, uh, they sell the floor. Okay. In other words, the basketball floor that they play on is new. Uh, the details are all in the newspaper about uh, the company. It happens to be called uh, Connor Sports, who puts in the flooring and where it comes from and where it's grown and the hardwood, etc. And uh, it has the big Final Four logo uh, in the center and, and all that. So it looks great. But it's, it's a floor that can be picked up and carried. And uh, the deal is... That well, not on the subway or something. No, it, no, can no. Be, it, ta- it, it can be. It can be pieces. It, it comes apart and it can be reassembled it's like elsewhere. Yes, yeah. Legos. Okay. So what they do is they, they, they what they didn't want. They didn't want a situation where Connor Sports could sell pieces of the floor to for memorabilia and try to make money this way. So the deal is that the manufacturer of the floor has to offer it to the team that won the tournament. In other words, Team the One Tournament can buy the floor on which it won the tournament. Mm-hmm. And it costs $100,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you guess that most teams buy it or don't buy it? What would you guess? I wouldn't guess. Okay. Uh, they all buy it. They all buy it. And, uh, you know, what do they do with it? Uh, they put it in crazy places. They, they, uh, they, they tend to break it up. It's not like they bring it back to campus, like Kentucky, for example, just puts it as a practice floor or a home floor. No. They all put it in different places, and they tend to find places on the campus, like the student center or a lobby of a big building or something like that, Mm -hmm. to put in particular the centerpiece of the floor, the final floor, Mm -hmm. floor logo and stuff like that, you know, to make as much of the memory as they possibly can. And there are stories about, you know, in Villanova, how they, they, they actually, you know, paint on certain sections where key shots were made, and it's in various parts of the campus, and they try to make as much of it as, as, as they possibly can. So uh, that's something I never thought about. So they, they buy so, the floor. So the, uh, the powers that be in the school administration are sitting there watching the game, right, and say, oh, crap, where are we going to get $100,000 to buy oh, this? Well, it's funny uh, you should ask that. It has often come, comes from anonymous donor, or donors. In other words, if you can believe it, if they're winning the national championship and the team's and, supported by these donors say, does anybody want to come up with 100000 People raise their hand. Okay. Life, that's, that's life in this <laughs> United States. All right, so good. you don't have to worry about it so much. So, you know, Princeton wins the NCAA uh, Final Four. You and me, we're, we're going to buy it. That's the plan. So we are looking forward now that we've had two shots. And uh, as soon as uh, the so-called, the sort of shot quarantine period is over, um, we're looking forward to going back to restaurants. And, uh, I mean, it's a little tricky because uh, some of our old favorites have uh, closed in the meantime, and some seem like they may be radically changed. So, uh, but nonetheless, you know, that is a dream, going out to interesting and beautiful places and having food I did not have to cook. Yeah, I see you feel more strongly about yes. this than I did. Yeah. Um, so I noticed a um, review in the Wall Street Journal this weekend of a book, a memoir by Aaron French called Finding Freedom. And uh, Aaron French is uh, the chef and owner of The Lost Kitchen, a wonderful restaurant up in Freedom, Maine. Get yeah. it? Finding Freedom. Listen, even I Freedom, have heard of this restaurant. Okay. Yes, because there have been huge articles in the New York Times right. about how 
you get reservations. You you know, there's a reservation lottery. It's a small it's a, restaurant. It's a 40 seat restaurant. Yeah. It's open basically from May through New Year's. Right. And uh, they they get over 20,000 people trying to get reservations. And it, it's just there. simple food, local produce. Simple, elegant food. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a thing. You know, yeah. interesting, American. Um, basil, black pepper, brined chicken, tuna in olive oil, cucumber, cilantro. Um, it, she, it looks like, and I think this is the way um, it goes, there's one menu. Mm-hmm. And you, um, if you're lucky enough to get a res- reservation, you eat that menu. What, they one, do not what, have one menu per day. She just yes. knocks out the menu right. for that day because that's what she's cooking. Yes, yeah. cooking cooking dinner for forty. All right, and uh, they don't have a liquor license. Mm-hmm. So in the basement of the restaurant, her mother has a little wine store. Ooh, that's yes. where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> the money it's in an old grist mill. Yeah, she must do pretty well, and yeah. it's quite. Quite beautiful, quite uh, you know, fantastic. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, um, right. So uh, it's it's the perfect it's the place I would love to go, but I would n- never manage to go through all the hoopla yeah. of uh, trying to get a reservation there. Anyway, yeah. she had an interesting life, Erin French. Right. Okay, she's recently put out a cookbook, mm-hmm. uh, recipes and a good life found in Freedom, Maine. Uh, the Lost Kitchen, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's been pretty popular. Uh, now she's written the story of her life, which is uh, is kind of interesting. She ha- it's just a tough life. She's uh, um, actually grows up working in her father's diner, mm-hmm. and just uh, sounds like a very simple, fabulous place. Well, she likes, yeah. yeah, donuts, piles of uh, fried uh, calamari, um, you know. Uh, and she has dreams. Right. She has dreams of becoming a doctor, getting the hell out of freedom, right. Maine, etc. But uh, she finds herself uh, pregnant, well, and basically alone. She doesn't at age twenty one. She doesn't marry well. Uh, she has a couple of bad marriages, uh, so it's uh, you know puts her to sort of a, in a spot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so much and then her father actually is because it read to me like a father's kind of a mixed bag so uh, he he ends up to be somewhat harsh yeah so, so she has a tough time well she you know she works really hard she has like uh, nine different jobs after her son is born right. you know uh, working as a caterer working in kitchen supply right. she marries a guy a bolt boat builder yeah uh, old enough to be her father right and uh, at some point they start a restaurant in their apartment. Yeah. It's one of those. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, you go and, uh, you know, you have a reservation and you uh, go in and eat a meal in somebody's uh, apartment. Right. But that, and, and, and you know, and then that, that it grows into having an actual restaurant. But the marriage flounders and uh, she ends up losing custody of her son and the restaurant, mm-hmm. and she must start over. And she starts over by doing little pop-ups mm-hmm. uh, out of her airstream mm-hmm. in various locations where she, and she happens upon um, this location, the grist mill, mm-hmm. and decides, you know, this could be a restaurant. Well, it's uh, amazing so. that she succeeded. 
But it is, did. yeah, yeah. I'm not even clo- um, well, the, 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 I'm not even covering substance abuse and rehab and you know all the other well, things I mean, she went I through. I had to pick up on it. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. She she's been through a lot. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the you know the lost kitchen. Okay. To Google it because uh, the pictures of the restaurant look it's like your dream restaurant. It's yeah. simple, wonderful. That's like your dream food. Restaurant. I like the um, diner in this story. It, it reminded me in some way. Of, remember Nimmo's in uh, Galway? Yeah. yeah. It's like that, but a little bit bigger. And uh, you, might, you know, actually, it reminds me of finest kind dining in, in Maine. No, no, nicer. No, not at all. Yeah. Okay. Not, not at all. Well, she, it's all with. Uh, she has mismatched flea market, you know, okay. China, et cetera, and so forth, with yeah. the really elegant, simple um, chairs and tables and so forth. Anyway, um, so that was interesting. That was fun to read about her, and it might be a very interesting story. And, but I read another restaurant story in the yeah. Wall Street Journal. Right. Uh, tour gobbles up space amid pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, we have been uh, traveling up and down Route 202 to 287 for years. And we go through Bridgewater. And on the edge of Bridgewater, there's a little restaurant we've been kind of watching for a while. I mean, it's not nothing old and cute and quaint. It's brand new. It's built, uh, this is a whole yeah. kind of shopping area, right. okay? There's the big mall on the other side and various strip malls. Right, it's... On it, it, one side. It, so there's there's a burger restaurant. It's called, strip mall what was location. it called before? Z Burger? I don't know. But uh, we like anything that starts with Z because it reminds us of Zeke, yeah. our son. Uh, anyway, Z Burger seemed to go out of business and we noticed they're renovating and they put up a sign that says... Tony, uh, Tommy's Tavern and Tap. Yeah. Interesting. No. So, but, but anyway. well, because yeah. this article, the article is about Tommy. It doesn't look like a place we would ever go, but it, it, it's Tommy Bonifiglio. It is. He owns all these restaurants in New Jersey. He's a lawyer, yeah. a successful lawyer. They say At that. a certain point, I wouldn't buy that. He had go a big ahead. house in Seabright yeah. and two kids in private school. Yeah. And uh, yeah. isn't there more? You know, he did not find the work as satisfying. You know that's called, so he, that's called a narrative. But, but, but go ahead. Who doesn't love a good narrative? Let's get to okay. the restaurant stuff. All right. He's he he's floundering. He and his a wife buy an old <laughs> floundering. It's floundering. He's drowning in Seabright. And anyway, he has he he buys an old uh, building in Seabright and uh, puts in a restaurant, and then he's off to the races. He has opened up four. Uh, let me just say, the first restaurant he opened in 2015, yeah. okay? But during the pandemic, yeah. did you hear me? During the pandemic, yeah. he has opened up four more right. restaurants, right. and more are going to open. They're almost all called Tommy's Tavern and Tap right. or Tommy's Tap and Tavern or whatever. So that's what that place is going to be, his next venture. Okay. But he-, he swoops in. He likes these big sites, okay? <laughs> and he swoops in. And talks to the landlords yeah. before they even have a chance to right. realize yeah. that their tenant is uh, never coming okay. back. You know, you, all right. You, you can, and, what? He's ahead of the game. No. He finds these places <laughs> because once they're up for rent, right? Yeah. Once they're advertised, you know, lease available. Yeah. It's too late. Okay. He's getting the goods before can I, can anyone else. Can I jump else. in here for a second? Right. There is no evidence in that article that anything he's done is successful. And Well, he keeps doing it. Yes, that's why it's an interesting story. 
And it, he could be a spectacular failure, including employed, the restaurant okay, that you're talking about. He employs about. his whole family. That, right? Great. That's, I don't know how and that cuts, but okay. Yeah. They work together seven days a week, oh, laughing and like squabbling yeah. and wow. gathering every Sunday for an Italian meal. We're his partners in crime. I don't know who wrote this article for His him. daughter. We jump right off the cliff with him. We don't I, hesitate. I think Here, they, but here's the deal. Yeah. Okay. I think the they jumped problem, off a cliff. I'm the only you. problem he's had. Yeah. He smelled an opportunity. It's not and that's exactly what you mentioned yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. You said there are going to be lots of opportunities right. Right. for new restaurants. Right, there will be. But it's sad that these places have gone out of business, right. but there's going to be a vacuum here, here and doing. there's going to be Listen, an if I'm taking the article at his word, he's, not, he's coming in and paying the same rent people were paying pre-COVID. He's not negotiating a deal where he's getting a break. He's not taking over distressed property. He's not taking over somebody's loans. He's not buying something on foreclosure. He's buying it as if it was 18 months ago and paying exactly what it was worth then. And I am telling you, that makes no sense. So, so It only makes sense if he knows what he's doing. He has, <laughs> he has figured out. He okay. has figured out his yes. system. Hey, it's not the lost kitchen. Okay? I understand. It's burgers, pizza, sushi. Okay. A lot of people and lose money beer, on burgers, pizza, okay? and sushi. Okay. Liquor. Listen, we'll just right? watch out. We'll see what His he's doing. His one problem yeah. with the whole plan is he can't get employees. Yeah. You know, it's not his one problem. That's one of his, his problems. His biggest problem. No. His biggest problem is he's going to lose money. The, the, the thing is this. We shall see what he does. It's a, the, What's interesting about the article, and it's an interesting article, is that everything he's doing is counterintuitive and points downward. So if it works out, he's a genius. Sometimes I'll be curious that's to see. the way the great ideas I, are. Okay. They're counterintuitive. We shall see. All know? I'm saying is when I look at what I'm looking at, I'm saying this does not look good. Anyway, I think we should, uh, We, you know, when we do our bike ride. Yeah. Um, Seabright? We go right through Seabright. Yeah, okay. Um, what's it called? What the whole area? Up there? Yeah, the area. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's As you know, oh, come on, Sandy Hook. I mean, Sandy Hook. Yeah. yeah, we go right past where that restaurant is. Oh, we should, do we? Yeah, we should stop. All right, we, can we do should that. stop in at some point. All right, uh, but it is getting employees is a huge problem. Well, that's true. I've seen that's true. I've seen at least three articles. Yeah, about that. You can't get employees. Well, there's the, more. There's they a couple. can't get the restaurant industry going again. There are a few reasons. One of them is. That I've read, accordingly, apparently, is that there are people still getting unemployment and aid that they only qualify for if they're not working, and they get more than they got where right. they were working. Right. So you're not the other get problem work. is people have moved. People have moved. People right. have left. Uh, it's too expensive to stay in the city or right. wherever. They've gone back home to their folks or to cheaper locations. Right. Um, so. But there you have it. All right. We'll find out. It's worth Tommy watching. Tommy Bonifiglio. All right. So here's something that you don't see every day, like maybe never. Uh, the San Diego Padres, uh, a pitcher of theirs pitched a no-hitter. Now, why do I say never? Because never before in the history of the San Diego Padres has there been a no-hitter. Does that sound familiar? Remember when the Mets had that? The Mets had not had a no-hitter until that night that we were sitting at Diana's talking to Armand about uh, baseball and sort of following the game on my phone. And we realized that Johan Santana was pitching a no-hitter, and he ended up doing it. And then Nets had gone almost 50 years without a no-hitter. It turns out that the Mets record 
uh, futility in terms of having no hitter was broken by San Diego. It went more than 50 years without a no hitter. And yet they had one. There's a fellow named Joe Musgrove, whom they traded for, who was previous on the Pirates, pissed one the other day. Uh, you don't see no hitters. As a matter of fact, you don't see complete games. It's so rare now for pitchers to throw complete game that four of the last seven stars of th- starters to throw a no hitter had never before pitched a complete game. So <laughs> it just seems impossible. But here's the strangest thing of all. The guy who, uh, the last no-hitter was in September of last season. Uh, and the interesting thing, by a fellow named Alec Mills, who was uh, uh, on uh, the Chicago Cubs. And the interesting thing about that is that the catcher in that game, Alec Mills' catcher, and Joe Musgrove's catcher, now with the Padres, is the same person. And his name is Victor Caratini, and he's 27 years old, which is relatively young for a successful catcher. Mm-hmm. And he's caught the last two no-hitters. He's the first player ever to catch consecutive no-hitters with different teams. He was on the Cubs, now he's on the Pirates. Uh, and I said, wow, that's really something. But then when I read more closely, it's less of a big deal than I thought, because notwithstanding the different team point, then I'll let you guess, but you, you probably won't. Guess how many times that someone has caught the last two consecutive league no-hitters for the same team. And you'll say, I don't want to guess. Five. Ten. Yeah. It, it feels like it happens all the time. But in any event, it's very impressive that this fellow was the catcher uh, of the last two no-hitters with different teams, different pitchers. And this fellow, Joe Musgrove, is going on and on about you know how important the catcher was and how he's a genius. You know, he called the right game and, and so on and so forth. And uh, maybe, I'm sure this guy, Victor Caratini, is going to be very much in demand no matter how he hits, because, uh, you know, having a good catcher who helps your pitchers is a really big deal. So um, that was really something for baseball. Yes. Well, we're, we like catchers. Yeah. Well, I was a catcher. I might as well Sadie put it out there. Catcher, right? And Sadie was a catcher, right? And Sadie was a catcher. No coincidence. And uh, at the Devil Boys uh, picnic, you were the I catcher. was your catcher. You were my catcher. It's, yeah. it's a thinking man's okay. game behind yeah. the plate. It's a thinking no man's question. game. That's right. All right, you have. Is this me? Yes, it's this is. I call it museum update, but it's uh, not a museum update. It's, it's just a, an art update. Just an art update. Uh, and that is possible Caravaggio pulled from auction. Yeah. Okay. So I hate uh, when that happens, they're about to buy a painting for eighteen hundred dollars. I'm saying, wait a minute, is that a Caravaggio? And then you know you can't buy it. Boom. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There was a car. There was a um painting up for sale, about to be uh. Um, auctioned off, and uh, all of a sudden it got pulled. It's, it's like an antique, an antique roadshow moment because people were looking at it. They, uh, you know, and uh, actually it had been cataloged as perhaps from the circle of the 17th century Spanish painter Jose de Ribera, and um, starting bids like eighteen hundred bucks. Yeah. Okay, because it's from the circle. Of okay, um, somebody became aware of, yeah, is looked at this painting and said, That's not from the circle of Rivera, that's uh, that looks like a real Caravaggio. And you know what that person should have done? What they should have kept their mouth shut and bought the painting for 1800 bucks. Well, that would uh, that would be a little bit uh, mean, yeah. Um, well, so, right. but not everybody's convinced it's a real Caravaggio, some people think, uh. Possibly it's a um, copy 
Okay. Do we have any notion of what it would be worth if it was a real Caravaggio? Well, um, there was a Caravaggio. Do you remember we did a podcast uh, a while back where a Caravaggio of Judith beheading Holofernes was found in an attic mm-hmm. under a mattress right. in Toulouse, France. Uh-huh. Okay. And that was going up for sale. Right. Uh, and... Uh, that was also pulled from the auction. That that was having people were saying that might sell for a hundred to a hundred and seventy million, hundred and fifty million uh, buckos. Uh, oh, okay. oh. But suddenly oh. a buyer popped up before the auction and uh You never found out what they bought. Swooped it away yeah, yeah. for a mere thirty million. Oh really? So the most recent Caravaggio has gone for thirty million, uh, so yeah, that's a lot more than eighteen hundred. Right. So I think you want to have your ducks in a row. They say the problem with this painting is the provenance, which, as you know from watching a lot of antiques roadshow yeah. with me, is the history of ownership. Sure, I know what that means. There are a few hundred years where we don't know who had it or what. If you can um, document the chain of ownership from you know the original owner all the way up yeah. then you're confident you're, you're, you're right. crawling all the way back to Caravaggio but, so it's got issues uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens with it the subject matter is Eke Homo um, it is Christ uh, sitting there with um, Pontius Pilate it's about to hand him the crown of thorns uh, etc very interesting and, and the, the people who are promoting it are saying it's just it's not just a Caravaggio. It's one of the great yeah, Caravaggio. I'm looking at it now. It's got Caravaggio written all over it. It's, it's, well, it does, it does have that. It uh, looks that way. Yeah, it, it does have that. Those tremendous yeah. light, dark yeah. contrast. I would have spotted that. I w- we would have been yeah. at the auction at Rago's and they would have put it up for eighteen hundred dollars, and I would have nudged you and I said, "We can spend twenty five hundred dollars for this." Listen, everybody yeah. loves Caravaggio because he was such a bad boy, and uh, you know he's like the top. Italian Baroque painter. Mm-hmm. Um, he was forgotten, I guess, for many years, but now he's been in vogue for a while. So, you know, this, uh, there's some excitement here. All right. All right. So, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, of all places, has a big article on Jacob de Grom. Jacob de Grom, of course, is the Mets' great pitcher. He won the Cy Young Award two years in a row for best pitcher in the league, uh, not last year, in the shortened season, although he was second, I believe. Uh, and he, he keeps getting better and better. And, and, and what the article's about is what, <laughs> how is that possible? Because he's now thro- 32 when every year he's throwing harder, namely 100 miles an hour as opposed to, let's say, 98 previously than he did the previous year when usually at that age pitchers are losing velocity and trying to make an adjustment by throwing uh, more junk, they call it. Wait a minute, how old is he? He's 32. Oof. So you're saying, I didn't, well, listen, this is interesting that you say he's 32. You're surprised he's that old. He hasn't been around that long. And that's part of his story. Part of his story was he's a late bloomer because in college, he was a shortstop. Mm-hmm. And it's only late in his career, even in college, he started doing a little pitching and he was drafted as kind of a shortstop slash pitcher. Of course, the Mets, no idea what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> and they're developing him sort of as a, a pitcher. And I remember when he came up, he came up with a fellow named Rafael Montero, who was very much ballyhooed, is going to be the next great starter for the Mets, this was five, six, seven years ago. And uh, they came at the same time, so there were some injuries. 
And Matera was going to start, and DeGrom was going to get some innings in the bullpen, but Matera was the real deal. And Montero got a minor injury, and, and DeGrom had to start. And from the word go, DeGrom was excellent. He never dropped out of his throwing rotation, and Montero never made it. Well, when I watch pitchers, yeah. that seems like a very physically stressful it is. job. Yeah. You know, um, the things those arms go through. Right. It's just, but that, so that, I guess what you're saying is because he didn't hasn't been doing that, all through you know middle school, high school, That's whatever. Exactly right. Um, he, his body has experienced less stress, right? So and he's still got it. Well, it, 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 that's exactly what's going on. I compare him to other great pitchers who were pitchers all the way through middle school, middle school high school. All the innings they must have thrown, he wasn't throwing innings, mm-hmm. and he's just late in his career. He starts pitching relatively late, and he's got that many more bullets uh, left in his holster. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy, and the Mets are the beneficiaries of this. Dumb luck, you might call it. Uh, that's the only kind of way the Mets can possibly succeed, but they're succeeding with DeGrom. And uh, the story gets better and better. So it's it's just kind of unprecedented that he's throwing 100 miles an hour at 32. You're going to say to me, don't other pitchers throw 100 miles an hour? And the answer is yes, they do. But they're relief pitchers. They're, most of the pitchers you see are guys who come in for short stints right. and can throw 100 miles an hour for an inning. Yeah. He's throwing. He's starting a game and throwing 100 miles an hour in the seventh inning. I mean, it, it's it's kind of crazy. So uh, there you go, Jake Degrom. Of course, the other story I won't bother you is when he he pitches the Mets don't score and he runs, but that's it's a whole other world. They're all, they're just gobsmacked. They're gobsmacked. They're sitting there saying that guy is amazing. <laughs> he is. I can't. They're not concentrating. My, can't properly. concentrate on my hitting. Right. That's the explanation. All right. All right. So I have an obituary yeah. uh, from the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gianluigi Gian Gian Colalucci, who showed Michelangelo's true colors, dies at 91. Okay. And so this is a great story because this is a guy who led the charge. Yeah in cleaning off the Sistine Chapel and uh, the Day of Judgment, right? So um, he was, uh, this started in the 80s, took him about 14 years to get that ceiling cleaned. Now, keep in mind, Michelangelo. Um, So when I got introduced to Michelangelo, Mm -hmm. okay, Pictures of the Sistine Chapel, even though they were in color, just looked brown. There was nothing duller in my mind than paintings by Michelangelo. Mm -hmm. And that's because it's in a chapel. You have candles. Mm -hmm. You have incense. You have a lot of smoke. You have hundreds of years of dirt and debris and fungus growing over this. But that's the way people perceived great Renaissance painting. And in high school, even in college, I was just always saying, who would be interested in the Renaissance if that's what great painting is? Mm -hmm. Even to the extent that some um, painters would kind of put a brownish varnish haze over their paintings. Not as a matter of forgery, but just that's what a great painting looks like. Mm -hmm. It looks like the Sistine Chapel. Okay, so at a certain point, you know, it was a a big to-do 
but they decided to clean off the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. All right. There was a lot of controversy. There was a lot of blowback. Everybody's saying, you can't mess with perfection. You're going to strip off the master's work. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, nonetheless, they went forward. I mean, he got a lot of uh, um, criticism. Mm -hmm. Okay, it was a an inter, it was a painstaking process. Okay, they started by simply washing it with distilled water. Mm-hmm. They're taking little like sponges mm-hmm. and daubing mm-hmm. and seeing what they could get off with pure water. And then for harder areas, more difficult areas, they used a paste of um, sodium bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. Okay, with a little bit of antifungal agent in it, which they would carefully put up and then uh, pull away. Mm -hmm. And the difference was amazing. Mm -hmm. You went from this brown, dull, um, you know, uh, barely, uh, you know, obscured fog Mm -hmm. of painting to stunning, bright, amazing colors it changed all art history all of a sudden there was a new michelangelo okay people were convinced that michelangelo was not interested in color you read old textbooks that's what it will tell you once these ceilings were once the ceiling and the day of judgment the last judgment scene were cleaned off you could see Amazing, bold, clear, bright colors, apple green, startling blues, rosy peaches, okay? Gone were these shadowy, somber images, Mm -hmm. all right? Also part of the um, cleansing, uh, part of the renovation involved, remember when we went to uh, see the Sistine Chapel Mm -hmm. and we had a tour with that uh, crazy... Red-headed oh, woman, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. And uh, she um, she pointed us out, pointed out the Last Judgment, and she said, um, "You notice that although he's Michelangelo is famous for his nudes, right? right. Um, most of the nudes on that painting." were wearing little draperies right. across uh, their private parts. Well, that was someone else put that on, right? Yes, because it was deemed he, you know. Uh, he was told to clean it up, and he right. said, no, 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 no. Right. Uh, I'm not doing that. Um, but uh, after he died, mm-hmm. they had a guy, as the lady said, paint the underwears on, yeah. um, oh, and yeah. then changed a few details to make it less uh, erotic. Um, what's interesting about this is not only did it change our well, they, perception. Oh, well, they kept that on, though. No one stripped off the uh, they, Oh, I guess my point got lost there. My point is... They took uh, as much of the underwears oh, off did. as they could. Oh, okay. Yeah, with, without doing any damage. Right. It, it, most of the Sistine Sistine Chapel is true fresco, so it's painted on wet plaster. Right. But certain colors, like the blue, the lapis lazuli blue, yeah. can only be painted on top of dry, and that was the that was the critics' um, biggest complaint that um, in cleaning it off, you might take off the right. the a secco portion, the portion that had been painted dry. But they knew what they were doing. Anyway, not only did it change the perception of color and how um, Michelangelo 
thought about and manipulated color. Okay, he had a wonderful technique called Conjantismo, where he used colors, changes in color, to actually um, create a sense of perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but what John Car uh, Carlucci, John Luigi Colalucci, found the most impressive was this sort of transcendent spirituality that was revealed in this claiming. When you think about the big three, you think of Raphael, okay? Raphael, great businessman, ran a fantastic atelier. Um, and also beloved by everyone. Everyone loved him. Women loved him. Men loved him. Um, he's buried in the pantheon right. uh, of all places. Uh, and um, he's famous for those sweet Beautiful. Is there a Madonna more lovely and charming than Raphael's? No. Okay. Then we have Leonardo. Dark. A genius. Kind of anti-religious. Mm -hmm. He would say things like, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Um, you know, everybody seems wild about uh, the Madonna. You know, she's barely mentioned in the Bible. You know, and he, he was not at all interested. Uh Michelangelo, famous for the anatomy, okay? The um, powerful sexuality of his biblical figures, all right? He's always getting in trouble with people for, you know, with the Pope or somebody, uh, religious uh, powers that be uh, over uh, the nudity, etc. in his paintings. Um, he didn't like, he didn't seem to like people. He didn't seem to like people. He was a real loner. When people talk about his sexuality, there's a tendency to say, whoa, you know, look at that muscularity. Look at how he loves the male body. He must have been homosexual. And uh, yet other people say, well, you know, I don't know. He had this wonderful, he had this wonderful correspondence with this woman. Uh, I mean, who People write about his sexuality. They say, you know, really, when you come right down to it, he seems asexual. We don't know anything about him in that sense. But for all his weird, um, larger-than-life flaws, he seems to have been, of that three, the most spiritual. Okay, Even though he was loud and abrasive and uh, you know, um, constantly uh, challenging the norms in terms of religious art. And this came... Uh, remarkably through to Colalucci when they rededicated the cleaned Sistine Chapel mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, Pope celebrated a mass in uh, 94. He said he felt like he had been, this is Colalucci, I felt like I had been struck by a bolt of lightning. Suddenly he understood two important things. The transcendent spirituality of Michelangelo's paintings, and the true meaning of working inside the Vatican. So I enjoy that story because, uh, you know, just the, the transcendent nature of Michelangelo's work as revealed by the um, painstaking work by Colalucci and others uh, wouldn't be available to us today without him. That's interesting. Um... And it comes back also to the artist and his work. I mean, it's hard. Uh, 
one doesn't actually equate with the other, but uh, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, anyway, this is just to end on a very short note. Uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, doesn't have such uh, highfalutin obituaries this week. It has one of a woman named Jane Ellen Murray. The uh, headline is Ad Agency Typist Rose to Lead Campaign. She got a job at J. Walter Thompson, the advertising agency, uh, after getting out of Vassar. And the way things were at that time in 1948, she starts as a typist, but she pretty soon is creating ads um, and works her way up. Uh, they do mention one ad. I don't know why, because they tend not to like it and they kind of criticize her for it. She came up with an ad uh, for hair coloring. Uh, the quote is, we found out that an awful lot of women had anger because only blondes were shown in commercials. She told the Colorado newspaper, uh, she came up with a tagline, men toy with blondes, but they marry brunettes. Uh, and, uh, that was, <laughs> that was, a, that tagline was abandoned because women found it offensive. I can see that you would <laughs> shake in your head, but here's why I'm mentioning her. In her fifties, Jane Ellen Murray wrote musicals that were performed in Illinois and Florida. One of them was called Fear of Filing. So this and, goes back to the corporate musical Exactly. Okay. Described as a romantic romp about an internal revenue service agent falling in love with an audit victim. Songs included Many Happy Returns and H&R Block Rock. So there we go. Jane Ellen thank Murray. You, thank you, Jane. Is remembered for that. All right. Well, sorry I got so excited. About no, no, no. I mean, I wish we had almost given it more time. I mean, that's uh, very interesting stuff, the art stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, that's one of the great things in my life. Uh, I, I I often enjoy being wrong, but I was completely wrong about the Renaissance. Oh. <laughs> well, plus that uh, you have the Renaissance song now that you can sing whenever you feel like it, right? From, uh, what's that, Something Rotten? Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Renaissance. Yes. Well, uh, all, right. all right. On that note, we better get out of here. This yes. is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. Uh, with Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. And uh, we'll be back again next week.